I blacked out at 42 meters out of reach of the safety diver. He didn't even see me. He came down to 30 meters, couldn't see me. I already started to like fall back down. So he went back up to the surface. Then he activates the counterballast and it takes a long time for the plate to come back up. Then it catches me and brings me to the surface. So I fell from 130 down to 250 feet. At that point, I'd been under the water for almost seven minutes. It was about a minute before I started breathing again. Then this thought pops into my mind, this could be the last breath you're gonna take. This is William Trubridge, one of the greatest freedivers in the world. In 2016, he swam 335 feet straight down in one single breath, breaking the world record for the deepest finless freedive. And today, we're gonna talk about why freediving gives a better high than drugs, how anyone can use breathwork to stop anxiety and fear, and the time he almost died 100 feet underwater in the middle of the ocean. Every week, we are dropping the most interesting conversations on the internet right here at Camp Gagnon. Don't miss it, hit the subscribe button right here. Now, enjoy my conversation with William Trubridge. Welcome to camp. Will Trubridge. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Okay, nice. All right. Um, I'm really excited to talk, man. This is like, I've been looking forward to this. This is going to be really cool. Free diving, for me at least, I didn't really know anything about it prior to researching. I just knew that there was, it was like this death-defying feat where you go down, you come back up, but I didn't understand the specifics and the mental sort of like meditative focus that goes into doing what you've done. Um, obviously multiple world record holder, uh, you know, creating techniques, practices, you have a training regiment that I don't really think people in freediving have done prior to you. Uh, there's so many things that you've done for the sport that I think is really, really impressive that I wanna get into. But first, can you sort of just explain to like a casual person like myself, what, uh, what freediving is, why, uh, it's significant as sort of like the different substrata of free diving that people can fall into. Mm. Yeah, so its essence is it's just breath hold diving. And there's two ways of doing that in the pool where you hold your breath as long as you can, just motionless. That's called static apnea. Apnea means breath hold. Mm -hmm. Or swimming laps underwater, as many laps as you can on one breath. They call, called, it, they call it apnea. That's yeah. just when you just are holding your breath. Yeah, it comes from Greek apnea without breath ah this is like uh, sleep apnea similar yeah so yeah it's, it's breath holding yeah. but um what i specialize in is the depth disciplines where we're going as deep as you can on one breath mm -hmm. um and there's a few of those but the the kind of my passion the purest one is uh without fins where it's just you swimming down as far as you can with just your hands and your feet to right you. and you're not holding the rope there is a rope with you but you're not mm. grabbing it or anything like that until you flip it's just a reference yeah you can use it once at the bottom to turn around right but other than that you can't touch it or pull on it and so there's substrata where people use fins to go down mm -hmm. and then there's also where people use like a sled right yeah the sled one is kind of become more obsolete uh because oh, really? it's it's more of a stunt um back in the 70s 80s i don't know if you've seen a movie called the big blue I think so. Um, is, so that, that, is that the Brazilian dude? There was a, a French and an Italian guy. The okay. Frenchman is played by Jean Reno. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that movie is based around the sled disciplines, which was kind of big by, back then. But now no one really does it anymore. It's just kind of a, a stunt. It's like a novelty. Else. Yeah. Got it. So it's not, oh, that's interesting. Because in my mind, that's the one that's the most popular. Where it's right. like, that's what is like the thing. Because I guess you get the greatest depths when you're sled diving. You get the biggest number, but it's actually not athletic because all you're doing is just holding onto a sled you're just getting kind of dunked like a 
teabag yeah. as deep as you can. <laughs> um, as long as you can equalize your ears, yeah. then as, as a breath hold, it doesn't take very long uh, because the sled moves so fast. Oh, interesting. So have you ever done a sled dive? Is that, was that interesting to you? Yeah, I've, I've done them. They're fun, um, but I've never kind of like trained it or pursued it. Sure. Okay. And you specifically like finless because that is, I, I think you mentioned this in, a, in another conversation, but it's, it's the most pure, it's the most stripped down. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious about your, uh, your pursuit of that specific discipline. Yeah. The way I see it is it's the purest definition of human aquatic potential, mm. because um, if you think of human speed, who do you think of like the fastest man? Usain Bolt. Yeah, you don't think of the guy on the bike, right? Yeah. Uh, even though they go a lot quicker. Uh, so it's just the human body, how fast can that go? Right. And underwater with depth, um, unassisted freediving is how deep can the human body go in one breath? And then your ascent is not assisted with anything. Your ascent is also just you kicking. Yeah. Ah, kicking and, and pulling with your hands as well. So right. you're, you're swimming base. It looks like breaststroke on the surface, except that the arms move further. They come all the way to your sides. Like it's a bigger stroke. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I guess that the other discipline is if you're using the rope to pull yourself. Yeah. And then there's also with fins as well, in which um, most athletes use a monofin, like a big mermaid's tail. Oh, okay, cool. And that's obviously a bigger propulsive area. So you can go a lot deeper. Oh, interesting. Well. Okay. So you're completely sort of unrestricted by everything else you're not using any type of aids and you hold the world record for the deepest finless descent correct that's 102 correct. meters yeah aka i know Three. we were talking about this before we're <laughs> like we're using imperial here only so 331 feet so that's like a football field uh yeah pretty, pretty much, much. Yeah. a football field straight down and then straight back up yeah insane it, i think it's truly insane i i, I don't think a lot of people that like if you didn't grow up around water or like swimming a lot, I don't know if people truly understand the stakes of that type of feat. And I think a, a lot of casual people would be like, all right. But think about like I, I grew up with a pool and it was like maybe 10 or 15 feet and you get down to the bottom and your ears are hurting. It's hard to descend. Like your chest kind of gets compressed a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's extremely difficult to go 15 feet. And then the idea of going... 10 times that 15 times it's it's truly insane so the stakes of going down to that depth can can you talk about sort of the danger and the risk associated with it obviously you know you're at the bottom of the ocean but uh what are the other things that are happening mentally and physically as you're descending to 300 feet oh yeah there's a lot um because it's physically it's unlike any other sport uh so the lungs are compressed to a volume of at that depth like the volume of a tennis ball uh and we don't normally, like even if you do a full exhale now, your lungs will contain kind of um, a few liters of, of air still in them. So we don't encounter that kind of lung volume in our day-to-day -day lives at all. Oh, so wow. being able to accommodate that pressure change and being able to still bring air up into your ears and sinuses to equalize. Do you know how many pounds that is roughly? Pounds of, of pressure, like PSI. Yeah, or uh, kilos or whatever uh, you people use. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's more. It's a lot more than what is in your car tire. Like your car tire is 35 PSI, I think. Yeah. And I, f I feel like it's it's over 100 PSI um, or, or more. Um, so the pressure on your body, yeah, is... is a few is, hundred pounds. It, like just imagine a few hundred pounds, maybe even a thousand pounds just on your chest just sitting there yeah i'm not sure if it's quite a thousand but it's it's 
quite a bit. You don't feel like it's not like you have like the a weight of an elephant on your body or anything like that. You only feel the effects on the air volumes in your body, which is in your lungs and in your head. Mm-hmm. And if you're not flexible, like if you can't um, kind of accommodate that that pressure um, and the, the change in volume, then something's going to break internally. So we get um, blood flowing into the lungs. And then when you come to the surface, you'll be spitting up or coughing up blood in a minor case, or it can be worse than that as well. So that's obviously if you're not adapted, if you're not trained for it. Right. Um, and that's one of the risks, um, but it's not the biggest one the biggest one is obviously going to be running out of oxygen at some point during the dive Mm -hmm. and if you're kind of close to the limit then you're going to run out of oxygen at the very end of the dive where your safety divers are all around you and they can bring you to the surface um, and support you and it's actually not as dangerous as it sounds because even if you black out then you don't get air coming into your lungs. Your your lips and your glottis stay shut. Yeah. And, and you're brought to the surface and within a few seconds they blow in your face and you come to. So that's kind of benign. If it happens deeper out of the reach of the safety divers, like you really screw up, Yeah. then then you're in trouble. I mean, it's insane. If anyone hasn't seen, we can even drop a video in here, Will. Of, I, I, there was a couple of videos that I saw of people passing out during like... Uh, are blacking out during like even like shallow water dives or like long breath holds even like in a pool mm. and it looks insane like it looks like this they're dead right it's because insane they're, they're blue in the face and everything they're unconscious there's water all, like and, yeah. and, and for you to sit here and be like you know it's not that bad you know it's, <laughs> it's like what is happening it's crazy obviously it's something we want to avoid right yeah of course um, but it's just but there's uh, no the body even though it looks kind of grisly and everything the body isn't in that moment kind of undergoing any permanent damage or anything mm-hmm. like that you still have about 50 percent saturation of your arterial blood for oxygen mm-hmm. and that's plenty for the brain and everything that needs oxygen uh this is just your brain shutting off as a preventative measure yeah it's just like your computer when it kind of gets to a certain amount of the battery it shuts down to right. preserve its like a basic function right but you can still plug it back in and it'll turn on and it's fine yeah that makes sense um, and, so and the safety divers that are with you what depth do they track you down and where do they meet back up with you on a on a very deep dive they'll come to meet me at 40 meters so 120 feet uh but we also have like a sonar system that you can track the diver for the the whole duration of the dive mm. you can see exactly where they are and if something happens during the dive we have a counterbalanced weight that can be dropped on the back side of the platform and that pulls the the dive line up with it and now we're not touching the dive line but we have a running carabiner like a lanyard ah. so uh, we're kind of clipped on um to that rope uh with the carabiner oh interesting and if the counterbalance is dropped the whole rope assembly comes up pulls the carabiner pulls the carabiner and you will yeah oh interesting okay that's i mean that's worst case scenario that's like yeah. if the sonar is like oh he's not moving we got to do something exactly drop yeah. the counterballast. yeah and then i guess other issues that can happen i know this happened to uh, the guy who made, I think, the deepest uh, descent with a sled, that on the way up, it wasn't necessarily oxygen. It was like uh, too much nitrogen or something like that. Mm. Um, and I guess he suffered like stroke on the way to the surface. Yeah, it's DCS or like bubbles forming in the in the blood uh, from coming up too quickly. He actually passed out due to the nitrogen. Um, 
from narcosis, like the gases that we breathe at the surface that we don't even kind of, they're benign on the surface, they can become narcotic at depth. And so um, that nitrogen led him to, to pass out. And so he came up too quickly. And um, and yeah, those bubbles form when you come up too quick in the same way that like if you open a, a bottle of Coke really quickly, then the, it, it, the bubbles come out of the bottle. Right. I mean, it's just so, so insane. And I guess when you count, like when you consider all of the risks associated with it, I mean, it just seems unbearable. And I, I forget, actually, I think it was like a Vsauce video. This is like a, a YouTuber that talks about like interesting science things. He mentioned that drowning and like suffocation is the greatest fear that humans have in terms of death. And what you do on a regular basis is confronting that in a really dramatic way. And it's just, it's really wild. And I think a lot of people wonder like, how and why and your story is mm. interesting that you you're born in england and at a very young age your parents are like all right we're gonna go be pirates and they throw you on a boat <laughs> and then you just basically live the first like five years of your life just like on a boat sailing around right mm. yeah and and you're just constantly in the water growing up from like a very young age and then from that point you're just immersed in the water but you don't start free diving until like 2003 roughly pretty much yeah and what drew you to it and Ultimately, what is the thing that once you start doing it, you're like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to? Yeah, it, it was kind of drawing me back. And when I look back, even at the time between when we sold the boat when I was 10 and I found freediving when I was like 22, there's kind of like a breadcrumb trail in there of like the, the ocean kind of calling me back. Um, like even like I wrote a poem on a on a dance floor when I was at university and it's and it. Like I couldn't do a better job now of writing a, a poem about freediving, even though I didn't know anything about the sport back then, didn't even know it existed. Mm -hmm. So when I found out that it existed, I was like, oh, I want to try that. Um, traveled to the to the Caribbean and pretty much spent like every day for the next, for three months um, going out with the scuba boats, um, just diving by myself, which is like the cardinal sin of, of freediving, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it makes it super dangerous and I'd never do that again now of course but back then i didn't know anything so i was just diving shallow depths to begin with and fell in love with it um and i think the reason it attracts me so much there's many many different reasons the biggest ones would be that it's a sensation it's a experience that is so unlike anything that we experience above the surface mm -hmm. um, we have gas solid and liquid we can only move through gas and liquid, but we spend all our lives on gas, actually on the boundary between gas and solid or on the boundary between gas and liquid. Mm -hmm. Freediving is the only activity where you're fully immersed in the liquid. Even scuba, you know, you've got like this, this room full of air that's compressed into a cylinder on your back. Submarines, like other aquatic sports like swimming or water polo, like they all happen on the boundary between water and air and mm -hmm. take advantage of that fact so freediving is pure immersion um and it's the only activity that gives you that and it's such a different experience yeah and you'd basically get into it and you're like yeah this is this is what i'm doing and i'm i'm so curious that those first couple of world records that you're breaking and the first couple of times that you're like yo i'm gonna go for this mm. there's it's interesting because it is this weird balance between athleticism where you're just an athlete that's able to swim 
extreme discipline in terms of like diet and training regimen mm -hmm. and then this extreme mental discipline mm. that i don't think is found really in any other sport uh, maybe like rock climbing or something i'm curious do you think there's any other sport that combines those specific things in such a in such a unique way yeah that's actually the the second biggest reason for me or biggest attraction of, of freediving is that it has that mental and physical component and they're both at 100 mm -hmm. um because prior to freediving as a kid i i used to play in chess tournaments and i was i was pretty good but um I would come home from these tournaments and like put the trophy on the table and then just like puke, puke my ring out kind of thing. Um, because I had all this physical um, stress and energy that wasn't coming out. And so um, the physical side wasn't satiated. Oh, interesting. You're building up all this cortisol in your blood and then yeah. there's no way to exercise it because you're just sitting there. Just sitting there with your mind. And then later on in university, I rode uh, for a while. And that was beautiful just being on the water and it's like super kind of physical discipline um uses your whole body but there wasn't the mental component so right it's kind of mindless just mm, pull um and i'm sure there are others are other sports and maybe rock climbing is, is one of those i haven't tried it myself where there's strong physical and mental components but in freediving it's 100 of both so mm -hmm. you you can't get to 100 meters on on brute force alone um if you're not relaxed if you're not in control of your mind then you're always gonna succumb to that and likewise you can't just meditate yourself down there you need to have the the technique and the explosive power and all the other elements of resistance that are required for yeah freedom. absolutely I, I mentioned to you before i really love motorcycles for the reason that it forces you to focus you know, I sometimes get distracted by things and like we'll be all over the place. But when you're on a motorcycle and you're going down the highway and it's just you and like all the trees and you're going, you know, 80 miles an hour, it's like I am thinking about here and now. And yeah. I'm so locked into this present moment because any deviation from that, if you're thinking about work, you're thinking about your wife, you're thinking about whatever, all of a sudden now you're introducing too many variables and your brain is just forcing them out. So mm -hmm. this extremely high stakes situation is all of a sudden locking you into the present moment. And I'm curious, does that happen with you? when you're at a descent and you're like, nothing can enter this. Yeah, yeah, it, you have to get into that state. Mm -hmm. um, so thoughts of the, I mean, the water does a good job of taking that away. Like if you just go to the beach and jump in the surf, then it's hard to be worrying about what's gonna happen in the, in the, in the future or kind of obsessed with what you should have said yesterday kind of yeah. thing. Um, so the water takes it away, but yeah, we definitely kind of, um use mental techniques to get into that state more and deeper for mm -hmm. sure and so that day that you break that world record you swim down a, you know a football field i'm curious what that process was like can you kind of take me through some of the preparation and then actually taking me to the day where you know mm -hmm. you're waking up working on the mental and then actually descending so what was the impetus leading up to that and remind me, where, where did you do it again? Is that at a blue? It's Dean's Blue Hole in the Bahamas, yeah. Yeah, Blue Hole. Yeah. And that's like a legendary free dive spot. It's Yeah, now it's the Mecca. So uh, Vertical Blue, which is the competition we organize there, is mm -hmm. kind of like the Wimbledon of, of free diving. And all the top athletes uh, make sure that they they come for that event. Right. Um, and it's interesting that it's, it's communal in that way, considering that the sport is so individualized. Mm. you know like on the day of the event everyone's showing up but it's like you're on your own and you're mm -hmm. doing this completely solo uh, do you find that there's 
what is like the freedive community? Do you find that there's a lot of cohesion? Do you find similarities amongst other freedivers? You meet them and you're Absolutely, like. Absolutely, yeah. And there has to be that, that cohesion and community because at the end of the day, we're training together. We're safetying for each other. You uh-huh. need to know that the person who's safetying you has your back. Right. So, so yeah, there's kind of like a, um, a tribe um, of, of in freediving and, and a good spirit amongst us. There's not yeah. too much kind of animosity or, or right, like negative rivalry of that right kind. you kind of need the competition i feel like a little bit like you need some people to like mm. kind of push you you're like yo this young guy keeps on you know hitting crazy depths like that's going to keep me on my game uh-huh. uh but ideally it's like cooperative right yeah i'm yeah. curious are there specific uh are there specific people or like groups or cultures that are really good at at free diving like I, I know that there's i think you posted about this actually on instagram that there was like the, people always post about this tribe in the Philippines, like, yeah, that's like amazing mm. at diving, and I think you kind of were a little skeptical. I think you were like, "Wow, no, well, they are amazing at diving." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Bajau tribe, yeah, and they live on boats basically, and and dive with no equipment. Like they open their eyes underwater, they're diving with these like makesh- makeshift um, spears and underwater for um, a long time, but it always gets inflated, right? So the actual time that they're underwater, I think, is maybe kind of a couple of minutes mm-hmm. um, at depths of like. 32 to maybe 90 feet at the most um but over the years i've seen that inflated to the point where now they're they're talked about being under the water for 13 minutes to greater depths and right um so i was just kind of um taking aim at that I gotcha guess, the, gotcha just yeah. more like other people's inflation of the story yeah. no pun intended but no they are i mean for them to do that and they've actually um adapted themselves like i don't know if it's um evolution but they have larger spleens than average and the spleen is an organ it's kind of like a sponge that's full of red blood cells and red blood cells is what carry and store oxygen oh interesting and that sponge that spleen contracts during a dive to squeeze those blood cells out into circulation it's part of what we call the dive reflex which is like this huge kind of collection of um physiological reactions to being on a breath hold underwater Mm. So yeah, their spleen stores more blood and therefore more oxygen, uh, which helps them for diving. And I think their eyes might have adapted a little bit as well to being able to see better underwater without goggles. Like in salt water. Mm. Oh, wow. So they're definitely, uh, yeah, they're they're pretty amazing. And and maybe if one of those guys was taken from the tribe and given kind of the resources to train freediving for several years, who knows, maybe they could... Oh, that's interesting you got to take one on as a student you got to mm-hmm. go over there dude like mm-hmm. have you seen the movie the blind side no oh, this this girl she finds like a kid he becomes a football player you got to uh-huh. do that you got to go over there and be like hey jump in the boat we're going <laughs> free diving and then just teach him everything it's yeah. just a wild thing i'm curious are there any like cultures specifically where like all the best free divers come out of this place or all the best free divers are you know this body composition or this body type or anything like that no um not that i've seen i mean we've we've got world record free divers from slovenia russia france um all over the show oh, a lot in europe mm-hmm. um but that might just be because that's been where it's been practiced i would say yeah there's no kind of like body shape that's um obviously having bigger lungs you'd think it would help right mm-hmm. and it does for the pool disciplines where you are moving kind of close to the surface or just lying there holding your breath but in depth what happens is your lungs get compressed and so 
if you have a huge lung volume on the surface, you to get off the surface because you're so buoyant, you have to wear weights. And when you descend, that lung volume will be compressed. So you lose that buoyancy and you're left with all this weight around your, your waist. Uh, so then it becomes very hard to get back up. Interesting. So that's why a lot of the aquatic mammals actually exhale before they dive, because the buoyancy change means more energy expense. Um, mm. So depth is kind of like the big equalizer in that sense, because having a big lung volume doesn't necessarily help. Um, being being tall or long-limbed doesn't necessarily help. Right. Um, maybe for the monofin, having like a, a longer core might help a little bit, but yeah. there's not... There's not any one thing that really like a basketball. Obviously, height is 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 everything. Of course, um, but not so much in freediving. I don't think that's interesting. Yeah, that like diving on the exhale is an interesting concept. I actually did like a I forget what it is. It's like a Wim Hof breathing exercise uh -huh. where basically it's like and you're basically like oxygenating your blood and you're then not, sorry just to cut in there you're not oxygenating what your am blood. i doing um you're hyperventilating which, <laughs> which doesn't ox so at the moment your your blood oxygen is 100 percent saturated it's like if that cup is 100 percent full then you can't put more water into the cup right okay so you, there's no breathing method that you can use right now to increase the oxygen saturation of your blood oh and this is one of the huge misnomers in freediving as well as especially in like outside and, and those kind of um, practices. So what you're doing with that breathing is you're lowering carbon dioxide, which is the waste gas that we produce. You're getting rid of that from your bloodstream and also from your body water where it dissolves um, and it forms carbonic acid. So getting rid of huge amounts of carbon dioxide makes it easy then for you to hold your breath because it's the CO2, the buildup of the CO2 that gives you the urge to breathe. The urge to breathe or that kind of like hunger for air is not due to a lower level of oxygen. It's due to a higher level of CO2. Oh, interesting. So it's not the oxygen itself. It's the byproduct of the oxygen. So if you get rid of the byproduct, mm -hmm. then as it's building up, you're able to be submerged for longer. You just start with a lower level of CO2. And so it takes longer to build up to those critical levels where it becomes like gives you that suffocating feeling. Oh, interesting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we'll edit my part out where I look like an idiot. Um, <laughs> no, no, so, no, so. no, leave it because <laughs> yeah, it no. it's a popular misnomer or misconception um, that we can breathe more and oxygenate the blood. You can't. Oh, interesting. Um, so I'm at 100% right now. Exactly, and that's actually the best for someone who's trained to tolerate high CO2. That's actually the best way to start a breath hold or a dive. Oh, so it's not decreasing your CO2, it's being able to withstand yeah. more co2 because the co2 is actually what triggers that dive reflex i talked about that adapts you to the water and allows you to conserve the oxygen you have better so you, i actually need to have that co2 in my body otherwise i'll black out sooner in a, uh, in a free dive that's interesting so you're basically increasing your tolerance rather than decreasing the the amount you start with exactly oh, yeah. that's fascinating yeah, yeah but decreasing the amount you start with hyperventilating like that is the shortcut to being able to hold your breath longer like you did on an exhale, right. especially, and you get this like buzzy feeling, I'm sure, like maybe like kind of pins and needles. Yeah, effect. exactly. That's what the exercise yeah. was. So it's like you, you know, spit out all this carbon dioxide <laughs> and then on the exhale you go, and yeah. then you're able to hold it. Because mm. if I just did that right now, I can maybe hold it for 10, 15 seconds. Mm. But when I did that exercise, I was able to hold it for like a minute. Yeah. 
So yeah. w- I guess what's happening there is, again, that shortcut where you're decreasing all the CO2, mm-hmm. and then I'm, I have a minute to sort of build up that byproduct, and then I need to breathe again. Exactly, yeah. Ah, yeah. I see. Whereas if you hold your breath now without any preparation like that, then you maybe stop holding your breath after 20, 30 seconds. But if you if we were to put a pulse oximeter, like measure your oxygen mm-hmm. at that time, it would still be at 100% or very close to it. Uh-huh. Um, so you haven't really used that much oxygen. It's just that you've produced CO2 and your body's starting to respond to that. Oh, interesting. And then as I'm moving my body, I'm exerting energy, which is then creating the byproduct. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. And so this is what you're talking about with that balance where mm-hmm. if I breathe out all my CO2 and I just sink, I'm not exerting any additional byproduct or I can take a deep breath and then I'm using my body, but I have a little bit more time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the aquatic mammals do it because they can store a lot more oxygen in their in their body. Mm-hmm. Um, so in their... Um, their blood has a lot more red blood cells and their muscle actually has a huge amount of myoglobin, which is similar to red blood cells. So they store like 80% of their oxygen in their in their blood and, and muscle tissue. Uh, Whereas for ourselves, for humans, we're not as good on that side. So we still do need to inhale um, before a dive in order to have good oxygen stores, but we're just not necessarily benefited if we have like a freakish lung volume. Like some of the guys who do pool training, pool disciplines, have lung volumes that are kind of 50 or 100% more than the average. So 15, 16 liters mm-hmm. uh, total. And that helps for just a pure breath hold on the surface. But again, it's like trying to bring a, a buoy with you uh, yeah, it's just when tough. you go down for a, a deep dive. And they're literally just expanding their lungs ability, like stretching it like a like a muscle, I guess? Yes, stretching the whole rib cage, the diaphragm, all that tissue. And as well as that, if they're static apnea, so pure breath hold specialists, they'll fast in order to um, to get rid of muscle mass so that they have a, a smaller engine, basically. It's like a, having a kind of a small uh, <laughs> one liter car um, with a huge um, gas tank on it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so you're, so I guess a lot of people will be like, oh, I can't, free dive because i wasn't born with big lungs but that's not the case you you can no. physically expand your capacity to pr- take in oxygen and then additionally expand your threshold to not to be able to handle more co2 yeah oh yeah, wow yeah, yeah. and if you're able to do both of those things that's when you're actually able to hold your breath for multiple minutes yeah there's there's more to it than that um because there's obviously the mental component comes into it as well right um but yeah those are two of the the bigger factors for sure oh that's interesting okay so on the day that you are breaking that record you wake up and what's happening mentally here hopefully as little as possible um i mean the more thoughts thoughts obviously um consume energy and and get you into patterns that can be counterproductive especially what I call scenario thinking. And that's that's pretty much all your brain is going to want to do if you're like preparing for a performance. What happens if something goes wrong? What happens if I get the record? And um, how's that going to be? And so you just get sucked into these rabbit holes where you're thinking, you're hallucinating, right, about stuff that pretty much all of it isn't going to happen. Maybe one of those scenarios maybe will come to pass, but the rest of it is just hallucinating about fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only that, but 
it has repercussions to you mentally and physically. So if you're thinking about something that stresses you out, then you activate the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight reflex. Um, so your hormones are going to be adrenaline and cortisol. And as those build up, your heart rate goes faster. You start kind of uh, consuming more energy um, and you're in the completely the wrong place for what has to be kind of a game of economy in a free dive where you're trying to go as far as you can on a limited amount of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, not getting sucked into that kind of cyclical thinking and all the um, the effects it has mentally and physically is the main goal in the morning. Right. Um, and just going through your routine, focusing on the moment, um, using um, techniques to to count or to put off or just to detach from that kind of thinking. Uh, but um, yeah, just trying to stay mellow, I guess. All right, guys, I got to tell you a story. This is when I was in Florida. We were driving to school. I was probably like seven or eight. I'm sitting at a stoplight. Me, my mom, my sister's in the car. All of a sudden, bam, someone hits us from behind. The whole back of the car dented, crumpled in. The woman gets out of the car. My mom gets out of the car. They start talking. I kid you not, the woman that hit us, her excuse, she goes, I sneezed. You sneezed? That pissed me off, I'm gonna be honest. Maybe the most expensive sneeze of all time. I couldn't think of a more expensive sneeze, man. There might be like a plane crash or something. But anyway, my mom just kept it moving. And the back of our car was dented for like six months. I was so embarrassed every time I we went to soccer practice. Everyone was like, Mark, what happened to your car? And I was like, look, there's a lady with allergies driving around my area and hit us. What we could have done is reached out to Morgan & Morgan. They have over 100 law offices and over 800 attorneys. And this is the thing that's cool with Morgan & Morgan. It's so easy to submit a claim. Yeah. It's like eight clicks or less. You don't even have to leave your couch. You don't have to go to a website, call up all these attorneys, be like, hey, uh, are you not going to rip me off? None of that. And this is the cool thing about Morgan & Morgan. This is what's wild about it. Their fee is free unless they win your case. That's right. Unless they win your case, you don't pay a dollar. That's a pretty good deal. And that seems like a pretty good incentive that they're going to fight for you. So if you're ever injured or there's a lady with allergies behind you that's sniffing saffron all day that bumps into you and your mom. For more information, go to forthepeople.com slash gagnon. That's right. That's F orthepeople.com slash Gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N, or dial pound law. That's pound 529 from your cell phone. That's forthepeople.com slash Gagnon, G-A-G-N-O-N, or pound law from your cell phone. Go get your money. Stop sneezing. God bless you. Well, let's get back to the show. And what, I'm curious, of the pie chart of like training, what percentage of it is dedicated to like physical ability, like stretching, mobility, weightlifting, things like that? And then what mm -hmm. percentage of it is dedicated to just pure meditation? So pure meditation by itself is something that I don't, I don't think I do that frequently uh, where I'm just kind of sitting and, and only meditating. But a lot of the training that I do for breath hold um, to, to develop that tolerance to high CO2 and to low oxygen, a lot of that training involves meditative te techniques. Mm, I guess um, that's a better question. I guess like breath work specifically. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's that kind of breath work where I'm maybe just... Um, Sitting still, dry, um, doing an exhale static like you did, but mm -hmm. um, doing 10 of them with just one breath between. So holding my breath for as long as I can, taking an inhale, exhale, keep on holding for as long as I can, that kind of work. There's also a lot of pool training where I'm swimming laps underwater. Maybe it's just a kind of 25 meters, 25 yards um, of the, the pool with a few seconds or a couple of breaths between them and repeating that decreasing the interval, um, increasing the distance. 
And then um, resistance training to try and develop more explosive power, especially in ways that are specific to the arm stroke and the leg kick for freediving. Oh, that makes sense. Flexibility work, working on the flexibility of the rib cage, the diaphragm, and also the rigid airways, your trachea and your bronchi, which are kind of semi-rigid, um, but they're the last point of resistance in terms of developing adaptation to depth. Oh, uh, interesting. And what is loosening up the, the trachea here? Is that to breathe in more oxygen, push out more CO2, both? Like, how do we do it? Or, yeah, what is the purpose of loosening your trachea? So as you as your lungs become compressed, they reach their limit of compression. It's kind of like if you imagine bringing a balloon and a glass bottle underwater, the pressure is just going to shatter that bottle at a few, few feet of depth. Uh, the balloon, you can take to any depth at all because it's completely flexible, right? Interesting. We want our body to be more like the balloon than the glass bottle. And it... It's kind of in the middle there, um, but we have this rib cage that makes the whole container semi-rigid. And we also have rigid airways that extend into the lungs that are propped open with cartilage. And so those don't want to compress too much as well. So as you get down way below the volume of a full exhale, like if I, if I breathe out all my air here now, that's the volume I reach at about 100 feet. Um, so going past that, obviously the volume keeps shrinking more and more, and you have to be able to tolerate that as well. Um, and the, the last, the most difficult place to develop that uh, flexibility is always going to be in the trachea and the bronchi. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I, I think an interesting point is I think a lot of people might be familiar with scuba diving, where you kind of, if you go down to the same depths that you're doing on one breath, you have to wait to come up because otherwise you get the bends mm -hmm. but you're able to descend all the way because you're only going on one breath exactly so your yep. lungs and everything are compressing uh -huh. and then re-expanding to the same exact rate so you don't have to readjust as you come up exactly right? yeah so uh, whereas in scuba if you took a breath at 100 meters that breath once it comes up to the surface would be uh, like 11 times as much um air and so it would expand to 11 times the volume. So you've taken a huge amount of, of gas in at that depth and that all that nitrogen then dissolves into your blood and creates the problems. In freediving, we don't have any of that. Right. Uh, we have different problems instead. Yeah. yeah, I remember when I was getting open water scuba certified, my instructor told me, he's like, if there's people like snorkeling with you, don't give them any oxygen at the bottom because mm -hmm. sometimes people will do that without thinking they'll be with the friend their friends snorkeling they'll be scuba diving and then they'll be like hey take some oxygen and yeah. they'll take a breath yeah. at depth even if it's only you know 20 feet or something mm -hmm. and then when they come up they're if they're not breathing out air their lungs will explode they'll get an expansion injury yeah yeah which yeah, is I've, just I've wild but people that. i guess don't realize that no it's it's not something that you would kind of um think of if you didn't understand the 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 way gases compresses and expand. But I've had scuba divers when I've been freediving, I, I, there's a spot where I used to kind of swim down to just 60 feet and, and go into a cave and lie on the sandy bottom in the cave and just lie there for a few minutes, I guess. And sometimes like a scuba group would come around the corner, go into the cave, see me lying there and think that I'm like a dead body or <laughs> like try and shove a regulator in my mouth. What? Um, so yeah, you we would lay in a cave for a couple minutes for fun. It's a it is immense fun. I mean, it's it's a different kind of a fun. It's a it's an amazing experience um, that takes you within yourself, uh, and you experience so much more about 
what you are in essence, um, like right, right deep down without all the extraneous stuff. What do you find out about yourself when you're lying in a cave alone for a few minutes? <laughs> it, so it puts you in, in intimate contact with this speck of awareness that's at your center. Um, that's just your consciousness. And we kind of get hung up or fixated or like into this concept of our identity being like our thoughts or our body or our person or the memories that we have of our life. Um, and it's not any of those things. You could take away all of those things, even the sensations, the, the sensory experience you have, and you would still have in the center this kind of speck of awareness. Um, and that's what we experience in a free dive because a free dive is very good at taking away all the extraneous shit. Like um, underwater, you don't have much of a concept of space because every every direction is uniform and there's no kind of sensation of your own gravity. You're like sitting in this chair, I can feel my weight um, pushing me into the chair. And so you have kind of this field of, of, of space around you that you're aware of. Underwater, everything is, is uniform. Every, every direction is the same. And so it kind of disappears because of that. Mm. Um, as well as that, there's no sound. Um, in a deep free dive, there's nothing visually. Um, often we'll close our eyes. Um, but even if you open them, it's just kind of a blank, like dark, dark blue or black. Oh, interesting. No smell, nothing else. Um, even thoughts themselves, as we talked about, they kind of get stripped away. So you're not experiencing your own thoughts or at least the, the empty spaces between thoughts are extended for a, a much longer time. And we don't realize it, but the passing of time, I think, is kind of instinctively measured in our bodies by our breathing. Uh, so you can't hear your heart rate most of the time, but you can feel and, and hear your breath. And that gives you kind of an indication of, of a rhythm of time. And so when you suspend that and hold your breath then it's almost as if time stops mm. so you lose space you lose time you lose sensations you lose thoughts and all that's left often is just this pinprick of awareness without any contents to that awareness uh, and that's obviously the kind of the goal of um, of, of meditation, right? Um, but at least for myself, it takes me, if I'm lucky, like 30, 40 minutes to hit that spot. Whereas in a free dive, you get there in seconds. Wow. Um, so it's kind of a shortcut to to nirvana, I guess, if you want to call it. But you asked if it's fun, and, and that's the experience that, that we're having when we're lying in a cave at 60 feet or in a deep free dive as well. Um, and that's huge part of the attraction for the sport wow have you ever done a sensory deprivation tank floating yeah 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 those I, are cool too do you find that i mean obviously it's not the same thing but in terms of okay you're there's no visual field mm -hmm. not really much smell i guess you're kind of smelling like salt water uh the water is perfectly the same temperature as your skin so you don't really have a ton of physical awareness as to like where your body begins mm -hmm. and ends and no real hearing because you're submerged in the water you know your ears are below is it similar in any regard? And in your experience doing it, have you found that you were able to kind of reach a similar kind of state? Yeah, it's very similar. The The two things that lacks is obviously you're still breathing. I mean, you can hold your breath as well. Um, and then 
your thoughts, at least my thoughts, in a deprivation tank, they're still coming, they're still flowing. And I spend most of my time just like observing those thoughts. Mm. Whereas in a, a deep free dive, m- most of the time, it's just being present in that pinprick of awareness, um, just kind of inhabiting that and, and not much else. Yeah. Do you think this practice has helped? Uh, I, I want to talk about anxiety because I know a lot of your work has, has dealt with, you know, anxiety and people dealing with uh, sort of like psychological disorders or emotional disorders that breathing techniques and sort of like presence and, and this type of, you know, technique has really helped with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious how, did, did you find that you were like more anxious before and then you start free diving and then you're able to calm it? Did you find that these things subconsciously were just manifesting in your life and you're like, oh, wow, we're actually, you know, I'm able to be more one in this moment. Like, how did it impact your emotional state and like your perspective on the world? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an area I'm moving more into now because I've kind of uh, realized the huge potential that these techniques that we use in training and um, in order to go deep have a profound application to stress and anxiety in day-to-day life whether it's at home or at the workplace wherever you are and it's a it's a epidemic right now i mean everyone is 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 stressed and anxious at the statistics i think uh 40 of of adults have an anxiety or stress disorder mm-hmm. um and that's an actual disorder it's not just kind of like a mild thing so it's out of control and what i've discovered is that these techniques have and a crazy application to those situations um and it's not just the being able to detach from the thoughts and inhabit that place but the breathing techniques as well that we use and it's not hyperventilation it's um mostly diaphragmatic breathing which activates the parasympathetic nervous system we talked before about fight or flight and the adrenaline and cortisol that's a sympathetic nervous system and you can go in the opposite direction by um, breathing through your nose into your diaphragm uh, in a certain way and that will calm you down and release hormones that activate the parasympathetic nervous system and slow the heart rate um, slow the metabolism down allow you to it also influences your thinking as well because it activates different areas of the brain um, that um, kind of pacify your your thinking as well. So instead of getting sucked into this kind of negative spiral where the negative thoughts stimulate your fight or flight and that um, stimulates more negative thoughts, mm-hmm. we go into an upward spiral of kind of boosting your confidence and um, developing equanimity, like the ability just to stay calm even in difficult or ad adverse situations yeah i feel that i've definitely in the past and even now to an extent i've struggled with anxiety and feeling anxious and just not even realizing i'll just be sitting there Mm. thinking about a million things i got to deal with and i'll feel my breath being very short and i'll just be like exactly yeah and i'm not even aware of it it's just i'm feeling bad and Mm. i don't even really know why and i'm like my body's getting cold and i'm kind of like recoiling and kind of getting small and the way that you're breathing is telling your body to 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 be more anxious because yeah, 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 yeah. you're breathing with your chest and there's stretch receptors in your in your rib cage and i that, feel the tension it's very bizarre i'll feel mm. physical like 
like a muscle or something in my chest is getting tighter. And uh-huh. I guess that is that negative spiral where my brain is telling my body, hey, we're a little concerned. And then my body's like, we should be concerned. And then yeah. it's telling my brain, you're right. And then it just keeps on negative feedback looping. Yeah, and there's, there's actual feedback from the stretch receptors in your rib cage that tell your brain, we're breathing this way, we must be stressed. Right. So continue with that stressful thinking. Exactly, and it's, um, it's, it's awful. And one of the things that I've done that kind of helps is like, uh, I forget exactly if, what the name for it is, but like a little kid after they've been crying, they'll go, mm-hmm. and it's like almost uh-huh. a double breath. Yeah. And it kind of, for me, it's actually helpful where like, if I'm feeling stressed, I'll go and mm. it'll kind of signal to my brain, like, oh, we can calm down. And it works miraculously. I'm curious, is has that a thing that you've ever heard of, like the double breath or anything like that? Yeah, I think it's called the physiological sigh. Okay. Does that ring a bell? Maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Huberman talks about that quite a bit as well. So um, I it, think that's actually where I heard it from. I think it was right. Huberman. Yeah. So um, it is definitely a technique and it helps. I find that, I mean, that's um maybe a, a a short-term fix but the in the long term in order to stop that fight or flight being activated breathing into your belly and having kind of a permanent um except if you're like working out really hard a permanent practice of using the diaphragm to breathe is what's going to hold you in that place of calmness and equanimity mm. for a longer period of time and in particular, like the, this technique, so I've developed a system now um, called the mental immune system where that combines the, the mental part, the mental techniques with the physical, the breathing methods and some other physical techniques. And the, the reason I called it the immune system is because it has to be programmed into your subconscious for it to work. If you're, like you talked about, um, realizing that you're breathing in a certain way when you're anxious if your body can recognize that something is stressful is happening or something is adverse happening and then activate a way of placating that of kind of soothing it before you're even aware of it that's the game changer uh once you're subconsciously preventing that hyperventilation Mm. from happening then you're brain is going hey we're anxious my body goes no we're okay not just preventing the bad but actually enhancing the good so enhancing the diaphragmatic breath okay which soothes you and so you can program this into your subconscious mind in the same way that you have like a immune system that's working behind the scenes so that when you encounter bacteria viruses you don't have to think about like okay guys deal with this cold it just happens right we have to have the same reaction to stress and anxiety Otherwise, if you're in a meeting and you're getting stressed out, you can never like go into the corner and, and like start breathing in a certain way. It, or you'll never remember to do that, uh, let alone be able to do it. Right. So, By the time you need it, it's already too late. Exactly. The same in an argument. Like who hasn't been in a situation where they're just like, they find themselves kind of blue in the face, like screaming and like their heart rate and they're, they're sweating and they're... Um, shaking maybe like all of that is the um, sympathetic nervous system that's been activated and the opposite can be true so you can find yourself in that kind of a situation that's normally very stressful and then you notice that instead of having that reaction instead you are kind of breathing deeply into your belly Um, you're mentally you're you feel like you're behind kind of soundproof glass like you're on the other side of this invisible barrier so mentally you can't be affected as well and so even though what's happening is 
not a good situation it's stressful you aren't re responding to it with stress you're like holding your inner calmness right and how can you practice that i'm sure this is obviously explained within you know your course mm. and, and program but what are some of the things that i could do you know when i'm feeling stressed let's say i'm you know going to go up on stage at a really big important comedy show and i'm like feeling my hyperventilation i'm feeling my chest get tight what are some uh -huh. things i can do to, to help yeah, so bringing your breath back into your into your belly, breathing with the diaphragm. You can I, even I don't even really think I know what that means. Like, right? This is through my nose. Um, definitely through your nose. Okay. Yeah. So through your nose, there's, there's all sorts of reasons, but um, it's um, one of them is that it rele releases nitric oxide into the the bloodstream, which is an incredible gas. It's actually made in thunderstorms as well, um, but that dilates um, your um, your bronchial tubes and does all sorts of other good things. So breathing through your nose is important for a variety of, of reasons. And then breathing deeply into the diaphragm as if you're um, kind of just trying to inflate the belly, pushing the air down um, into the belly. So that the lungs are shaped like pyramids. Mm -hmm. And if you inflate the lower half, that's where all the volume is. So it's a more efficient way of breathing as well as being kind of calming. Right. If you feel like you, you so that was a full breath and I saw your shoulders go up, mm -hmm. which means that you're breathing into your rib cage. Um, it doesn't need to be like a huge breath, but just if you keep one hand on your stomach and one hand on your chest, and then just think about like pushing, like breathing in a way that pushes that hand out. There you go. So that's a belly Whoa. breath. <laughs> have I ever, I don't know if I've ever done that before. So the, here's the thing. Babe, How stupid am I? I've never breathed already. <laughs> you, have, you have when you were, I mean, you, I'm sure you've done it more recently, but when you were a baby, they only breathe like this. Yeah, that's a good point. Sometimes I see babies breathing. It's just like their mm -hmm. whole belly's like going up and down. And we unlearn it, even though it's the most efficient way, we unlearn it because we encounter stress. And so that stress tells our body to breathe, <gasps> gasp air into your upper lungs, um, which is completely counterproductive it it um, cycles the, the stress so just breathing into the belly doesn't need to be too deep doesn't need to be fast um, and how many of those should I do like is it one of those things like how do I program that to become in my subconscious so the, the programming part is the it takes takes work um, but the idea is that you tackle small small hills small like problems at a time so um, like purposely taking on something that's just mildly stressful and then uh, working through it, focusing on breathing into your, into your belly. Mm. So for instance, if, you, if there's something that's stressing you out at the moment, um, I don't know, your mother-in-law is coming to visit in a, in a week um, or something else. And, and so you just kind of bring that into your awareness, to your attention, and maybe like uh, characterize it with a phrase or a word um, that sums that up. And then while you're thinking about it and maybe repeating that word, breathe into your belly like this, slowly, deep into the with the diaphragm. And on the inhale, um, you're kind of focusing on that breath. On the exhale, just focusing on letting everything go, including that stressful emotion. And still um, exhaling through the nose. Exhaling can be through the mouth, but through the nose is, is breathable. Uh, so, so just kind of taking on stress in a moment where you um, are prepared to to deal with it, 
and using that style of breathing mm. um, makes it start to become a habit. So you're starting to program the subconscious. That makes sense. And then taking on bigger and bigger challenges. And after a while, you'll start to notice that it then becomes habitual, that um, you've encountered something that's stressful. And at the same time, before you've thought about it, your breathing has changed and it's become this kind of calming, soothing, diaphragmatic breath interesting and do you find that it also inhibits uh your your thoughts specifically where like you know for me sometimes i'll if i'll be thinking about a future event mm -hmm. and like you know like the mother-in-law thing or i'll be thinking about something i did in the past and just by actively focusing on my breathing do you find that it you know not to use too many like uh, esoteric hippie words but like do you find that it grounds you or it makes you more present in the moment like you find when you're in that cave Absolutely, yeah. So just in the same way that the kind of gasping air into your rib cage stimulates um, different parts. It's, it's the, I think it's the amygdala, um, if I'm not mistaken. That's the fear spot, right? Yeah. Um, so it it stimulates the areas of your brain that are prepped to kind of counter danger and threat. Whereas when you're breathing into your diaphragm, it's more um, kind of prefrontal cortex, like the the calm, passive decision-making. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely it's that feedback loop. And in this case, it's a positive feedback loop. So you get like this upward spiral mm -hmm. and then you, you feel more confident. Okay, I can, I can do this. I can handle these situations. And so then you go into it with more confidence. You have better performance, better results, brings back more confidence and up and up you go. Oh, that's interesting. Why, why do you think we unlearn that? Like what happened? Is it just modern society, like things that are stressing us out in different ways? Or did human beings always unlearn sort of that stomach breathing and focus more on like that chest breathing? Yeah, the thing is, I think there's a disparity between how we've evolved and the dangers that we had during that evolution 10, 100,000 years ago mm -hmm. and what we are kind of encountering nowadays. So in the past, there were often um, like serious threats to our life. Um, and we needed to be able to respond with the fight or flight reflex in order to run away from a bear or, or catch, um, catch food for dinner. And so, yeah, it served a purpose back then. Nowadays, most of the stress that we counter um, is not of that kind. So if you're in a in a Starbucks waiting in the line and the guy in front of you is taking 10 minutes to, to order a coffee and you're getting like more and more stressed out, activating your fight or flight reflex is not going to help you in that moment unless you want to get into a fight with this guy. Yeah, of course. Um, or run away down the street from Starbucks. You have to be able to respond with something that's calming and soothing. Likewise, if you're arguing with your spouse, if you're preparing for a business meeting, if you're public speaking, all these scenarios where we encounter stress and anxiety in our day-to-day -day life, don't benefit from sympathetic, from fight or flight. They benefit from being calm. And so I think it's it's a skill that um, is definitely required for uh, the lives that we live now, but we've evolved for a different kind of a format. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's just really helpful. That's something I want to think about a lot, like as I'm in those exact situations being like, okay, focus on breathing into that stomach mm -hmm. and it's just going to tell my brain, Hey, everything's okay. We're mm -hmm. chilling right now. And, and in your brain at the same time, you can be focusing on just noticing what's going on, mm -hmm. um, noticing what's going on around you, but also noticing what's happening in your head and noticing that the thoughts you have, even if they're 
negative or emotional, they're just thoughts, they're just information that's coming out out of a deeper part of your brain to your awareness. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that you don't have to kind of look at or respond to all the information that's coming at you around you, the same thing for your, your own thoughts. You can just see them as information and use them accordingly. Yeah, that's interesting. I know you talked about like, uh, like before doing really deep dives, that, that devil that's talking to you, that devil's mm -hmm. advocate sort of in your head telling you bad scenarios. Yeah. Does that happen as you're descending and like as you're doing the turn? Are those thoughts still in your head? And how do you push out those kinds of thoughts? And what are you thinking about? How do you, what are you mentally processing? Typically, they don't happen at that stage. They'll, they'll happen early. Like if I'm getting them at that point, then I might be in trouble. Um, but they do, I do get those thoughts just before the dive or as I'm starting. Um, and that's where it's kind of the most delicate moment because anything that happens there will then influence the whole dive after that. So when I, like, for instance, I'm taking my last breath and this thought pops into my mind, this could be the last breath you're going to take. Um, and obviously, what, what do you do with that thought? Like, do you, do you combat it head on and go, no, it's not, it's going to be okay? Like, do you fight with it? Um, or do you just kind of try and let it slide through? Um, maybe there's going to be another thought flowing, following it. Or do you, um, one technique that I've used is to kind of postpone it um, and tell yourself, okay, I'm going to think about that, but just not right now. I'm going to think about that after the dive. Um, and of course, after the dive, it's irrelevant. But just giving it a time, scheduling it like that, can be enough to appease that part of your mind that's throwing out these negative thoughts. Oh, interesting. And um, so is that the approach you normally go with? is is sort of postponing the negativity these days it's it's a it's a popular one for me yeah um just kind of scheduling it and you could use this like um in your day-to-day -day life an example i use is if you're planning a mar uh, marriage a wedding and you're worrying about um i don't know if it's going to rain or all sorts of other things um you can tell yourself okay i'll i'll worry about that i'll think about that but i'm going to do it on the day after the wedding um and it's it's kind of like a little sleight of hand, I guess, with your own mind. That is enough to get it to like shut up for now um, and doesn't involve you expending kind of a huge amount of mental energy. Oh, that is interesting. Wow. Yeah, just postponing the thought. I'm really stressed about this business meeting. Mm -hmm. And after the meeting, I'll address this exactly. thing. I, yeah. I guess, I don't know, I think in my life, a lot of like uh, concerns and anxiety and fear will all clash at the same time. And right. they're all just happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if for you, with the work that you've done and the techniques and the breath work, if you notice thoughts as more like uh, singular capsules, does that make sense? Like a fear or some type of self-doubt will come up just as like a singular moment. And you're able to look at it and say, mm -hmm. this is just a singular thing that's coming from somewhere in my brain. And I can either address it now or later. Whereas for me, things will come up and I'm like, it's just happening. I mm. feel like I don't have control or awareness of this thing. It's not a capsule. It's just sort of encompassing my entire process. Does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. And that's why I talked about kind of being on the other side of this soundproof glass. Because right. as soon as you start noticing your thoughts, then you're identifying as them as something that's outside of you, that's not you. Um, and you're kind of putting it out there, which means that whatever you are is, is over here. Uh, and that 
process of detachment breaks its control over you. Uh, so no longer are you kind of just like in the middle of this this stream or this river of negative thoughts and kind of getting hit by one after the other. Um, you're off to the side observing that process, observing that that stream. And do you do that with all your thoughts or is it only the negative thoughts? Uh to a certain extent, I do it with all the thoughts, I guess, um, but it really is only required with the negative thoughts. Sometimes there's there's states that we're in or things that we're doing where we want to just be in that stream. It's like a happy place to just to float along it right. um, and, and sure, we don't kind of need to be detached in that moment. But having that as a, an ability is really important to um, minimize the effect that they can have on you. Have you studied this idea of the uh, the dissolution of self? That mm -hmm. you are not you. And what people, this is like some esoteric, you know, kind of hippie shit. If just when you, I bring it up to people, they're always like, what? But I guess it's this idea that you are not you. And that when people think about themselves, they're like, oh, I am my brain and my body, my everything. Mm. And as you sort of strip that back and sort of see your thoughts as things that sort of come into your mind and feelings mm -hmm. as things that sort of just enter into your mind that you don't necessarily have to engage with, that you can just sort of watch. Mm. You kind of start to break down this idea of what the self is and that you can actually, you, like, this is where enlightened people, I guess, will say you don't exist, mm -hmm. that you are an observer of thoughts and this you that you thought you were isn't actually who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely not a hippie shit because anyone can experience that mm -hmm. um, right now. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple thought experiment um, in order to prove that you are not thinking your thoughts, you're just experiencing them. What is that thought experiment? Um, just noticing that, like where, where are your thoughts coming from? If I tell you um, to pick a number between one and five, like, did you choose that number, the number that came up? I think I did. Or did it just pop into your head? Like, and if you chose it, if you validated it, if the number like four came and you went, okay, we'll go four, then that process of validation, the approval, where did that come from? And and as soon as you start chasing your thoughts like that, you find that they're all of them are just coming to you. You're not choosing to have your thoughts. And the idea that you could choose to have your thoughts is, is kind of um is is it should be happy shit because there's no way that that's that's possible right so um we don't have and yeah this it's kind of a little sad to to think of it but we don't have free will um mm -hmm. we're just experiencing our thoughts in the same way that we're experiencing you're experiencing what i'm saying right now um the thoughts in your head are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And you can prove that scientifically as well um, with experiments where they ask someone to, to pick a color. And if you are monitoring the brain um, with, with sensors, you can actually see what color they're going to pick a moment before they're aware of it. Um, because it's obviously coming up from somewhere in the brain and you can see that happening with the sensors before that person is actually um, conscious of it. And you're pretty confident that we don't really have free will. Well, that proves it, doesn't it? If, if we don't have any control over our thoughts, if they are, um, are ex we're experiencing them in the same way as everything else, then there, there can be no free will. Um, yeah, that's a difficult concept. It's it's a difficult pill to swallow, um, but it's it's um, yeah, it's a scientific fact as well as something that you can experience, and and you can experience it in free dive as well as in meditative states as well as with these 
thought experiments. Right. But, um, in that, in those deep free dives I talked about, where you just become the speck of awareness and nothing else, that's what you are. Um, you are not an identity. Um, an identity is just a, a collection of memories and thoughts and um, experiences and everything else. You're not your body because you can take away pieces of your body and that doesn't change right. who you are. Um, and um, you're not your own thoughts because you're not in, in control of those. So all you are is just this, like the analogy that I use is, is um, in a cinema, uh, uh, just like someone seated in the audience who cannot interact with what's happening on the on the cinema screen mm -hmm. um, and everything that happens happens on that screen so including your own thoughts they're all up there the sights that you see experiences you have everything is on that cinema screen and you're just the guy in the uh, audience who's watching it all and experiencing it but not able to um change necessarily the outcome mm, of that film mm-hmm yeah, that's an interesting idea. I don't. I have to think about that more because I guess my thought is that just because something's coming up doesn't mean that you can or can't choose to act on that that feeling and that action. Maybe is the 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 free will. Yeah, but the choice the choice to act on it or not. Where is that coming from? Right. Uh, that's that's where you like as, as soon as you start chasing it, you just you're always led back to something that's not by your own design uh, that's happening as part of um, it's a it's happening in your brain there's no doubt about that mm -hmm. but the part of your brain that's making these choices or choosing the number between one and ten is not a part that's that's conscious or that you have control over right yeah that's an interesting idea I'm curious about that and I, I for you personally do you ever find that if someone does something that aggrieves you some guy cuts you off in traffic or some guy's being an asshole. Does that deterministic mindset kind of set in where you're like, oh, he's not even, he doesn't even know what he's doing. Actually, yeah. Yeah, it, it helps to be able to generate empathy mm -hmm. a lot more with people. Like even people who have pissed me off in the past or um, who are essentially bad people, maybe uh, committed crimes. You can kind of understand that they are just inside. They're just like, a speck of awareness like myself that is along for a ride in a vehicle that's um, not doing so good. That's that's screwed up yeah, in, in one way or another. Way. Yeah, interesting. Um, and have you? I don't. I don't know if you're allowed to answer this due to you know competition and things like that. But have you experimented with drugs and, and you know mushrooms and psychotropic <laughs> types of medicines and things like that? Before I got into freediving, yeah, I did a lot in, in university. Yeah. Um, I did most of them. Uh, and then I was <laughs> most of them, that's such a funny way to describe most it. of the ones that were I've done all then. I've done all of them I've done yeah. every <laughs> just describe it that was hilarious <laughs> so can can you expand on sort of that topic and how that relates to this idea of self that you've that you've uncovered through freediving sure so yeah when in those days at university I was um enjoying that kind of a life but I was fully aware of the fact that it wasn't sustainable like I couldn't go my whole life in that in that place and also i was experiencing states um that were just like mind-blowingly um blissful for example um and i told myself i want to experience that but not because i've just pressed a button in my brain with a drug mm. i want to experience that because of something i've done or something that i've achieved 
And so I, I felt like this urge to, to get there through my own path. And so like, just for example, like, ha like, have you done mushrooms? Yeah. And that psilocybin is acting on your brain. You push a button that makes you feel, you know, it, interconnected with everything. Mm -hmm. And have you been able to achieve the same effect through just natural achievement or things you've done or meditation and is, is it the same? It's, um, I mean, mushrooms, when I took them, there was more hallucination involved as well, mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent. But yeah, there was, it was the, the essence of it, the, the most beautiful part of it was the same, that sense of interconnectedness of, of um, there's been dives where if, if it's just like a hang at a depth of, say, 200 feet, so I go down and hold onto the rope and completely relax there. And I felt you go so deep into that idea that you are just uh, a speck of consciousness. And then that speck starts to expand and you feel like the you, this is going to sound kooky, but you feel like you are the whole planet or the whole ocean as consciousness. Um, so that's kind of a state that I've gotten into in, in a deep free dive. And also those those highs that you get from some of the other drugs where you just feel like unstoppable or blissful. I've experienced that as well. Uh, so to the same degree, like it, it, it's wild for me to think that mm -hmm. a substance that, you know, is chemically altering your brain mm. can be achieved just through this, you know, practice or some type of like non substance enhanced uh, experience. It, it it's almost unbelievable to think that it can be the same. Yeah, no, it, I I can attest it, that it can be. Can it be better? So it's better because there's more fulfillment in it because you know that it's a product of something that you've done or you've achieved. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember there was a dive when the first time I got to um, 90 meters, which is just shy of 300 feet free diving. And I came back and I was, I was stoked. Um, and after like after lunch, I sometimes lie down on the couch and take a nap and maybe listen to music. And as I was lying there listening to music, I got this um, this sensation that started kind of like at the tip of my head up here and then just spread all the way down my spine and then like sending kind of like, um, um, it's hard to describe the sensation, kind of like tingles all out through my extremities to the point where my whole body felt like I was just kind of like buzzing. Um, and at the same time, I was like, I, I think I burst into tears as well because I was just feeling like this immense sensation of just joy and fulfillment and everything. Um, and yeah, that's that's similar to what you'd experience on ecstasy or or other, other drugs as well. So wow. um, that came because I guess, and I think this is this is common in these kind of experiences. They they talk about it in Kundalini awakening as well, and in, in yoga that you would kind of do all this work, and then suddenly in one moment, um, it'll just kind of like come on uh, come upon you as by surprise. The same thing with meditation. They talk about like um, people reaching enlightenment while they're chopping wood um, or doing something completely menial. Hmm. Um, so. So yeah, I've, I've, I feel like um, I can say that I've reached, I haven't gone back. So I stopped taking drugs of all that nature um, just before I went on that trip where I started freediving for the first time. And I actually had this, um, this pill 
that an emissary of the Dalai Lama had given to my mother uh, when he met her uh, for a retreat in New Zealand. And it's called a compassion pill. It's basically just like herbs compressed into like a tiny little pill. And I took that as a symbolic way to like end all of that past life with the, the drugs and everything and start whatever was going to be next. Um, wow. And since then, I haven't, um, haven't done anything at all. Your mom met the Dalai Lama, and he... she met an emissary of the Dalai oh, oh, Lama, right? Yeah, and yeah. and gave and got a pill. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. So I don't know <laughs> if that wild. that pill, like what what it contained, or if it did anything, but definitely mentally, um, I used it as kind of like a um, a, a point to to change to yeah, turn course. around. And the symbolism yeah. is beautiful. Mm. And at that time, were you? Were you using drugs, do you feel like, in an unhealthy way? Or was this just, you know, co like collegiate uh, experimentation? I don't think I was addicted um, to anything. And I don't think it was super unhealthy. And when you're young, you can kind of bounce back from anything. But mm -hmm. if I'd continued on that route, it probably would have gotten to that point eventually. So mm -hmm. it was the right time for me to get out. Like, yeah. As Alan Watts says, like, drugs are kind of like a phone call. And once you get the message, then you can hang up. Um so yeah, I'm I'm lucky enough to have hung up, I guess, at yeah. the right moment. And now you're able to get the message in other more sustainable ways. Mm. Right? Well the message was this is what this is like what you can experience. Now go out and, and find a way to experience it naturally. And do you um, get that experience only through achievement or can it just be through practice? You know, no, like it just, can be definitely through practice or through even through not necessarily through training or freediving, but um I can get that experience like just having a, a dinner with friends like at a um, nice restaurant or something and or just in like social situations sitting on a train sometimes mm -hmm. um, like it, as I say it just kind of comes up on you um, out of the blue has having kids because you've had two children in the last you know like five years or so has that changed your capacity to feel feelings like that has it changed your mental and meditative state or is it similar to how it was before no i'd like to say this it's similar um throwing kids into the mix definitely makes life a hundred times more complicated um so it is more difficult for me to train right now amongst other things but um yeah that capacity is still there that's not altered at all mm -hmm. and i'm curious you feel so like zen like your vibe even just right now just feels like very calm <laughs> Yeah. But simultaneously, you're still an athlete that is pushing yourself to an extremely difficult degree. And mm -hmm. that, you know, every few years, you're like, how can I go deeper? How can I do more? How do you balance that, like, insatiable competitiveness with this feeling of peace and, like, uh, oneness with, with everything? Do, mm. you feel, do you feel like those things are at odds? They are to a certain extent. And I was aware of that going into the sport because... As a kid, I was super com competitive. Like I talked about chess, and like I always had to to win. I was gutted if I lost. Um, the same thing in any game, I guess. Um, and I was aware acutely of the fact that I could not bring that approach into freediving, uh, because as soon as you dive with the ego to try and beat someone else or to try and achieve something, then uh, it's going to be an obstacle. It's, you're going to trip over it. Uh, so. I knew that I had to focus on the process and on just this kind of journey of exploration into what I'm capable of doing and what the human species is capable of doing mm -hmm. underwater. And so that's always been my focus is just trying to like mine that 
capacity, that aquaticity uh, potential underwater as deep as I can go. Right. And you're really blocking out other people as much as you can or other achievements and things like that. You're just focused on beating yourself a little more. Mm. That's been, yeah, the, the, the biggest successes of my career have been when I've been focused like that. That's, it's not yeah. always, it's not easy because you get sucked into these, these stories, like these rivalries and everything else. Uh, but definitely when uh, we're focused on the technique rather than the actual results, then we go further in the long run. Yeah, I feel that a lot. I, I, for me personally, I sometimes get sucked into this dichotomy where I'm like, oh, I think the things that would make me truly and happy, truly happy in life might be at odds with like career pursuits and career aspirations, especially within my work, you know, stand-up comedy is like, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is an art form that is completely unmeasurable. So what makes one person better than another person? You know, it's like, well, obviously, you know, do they get more laughs in the room or something like that? Mm. But ultimately it's subjective, right? You know, the person you think is the funniest in the world might be different than what he thinks is the funniest in the world. So as mm. a result, you're pursuing an unmeasurable task. They're mm. like pursuing an unmeasurable, you know, unattainable thing. Mm. So my pursuit to be like, oh, how can I be the greatest? And then I'm like, I think that would make me really miserable. Mm -hmm. And like, did you watch The Last Dance, Michael Jordan's documentary? Mm -hmm. You watch yeah. that and you're like, this guy was fierce and wanted to be the best and was creating enemies in his head that weren't even real. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it kind of seems like it made him more sad in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's like, if the pursuit and the goal is to be at peace and content and present and happy with what you have, I, yeah, I just struggle with trying to also be great and have more and be the greatest you know mm. things like that mm. it is a dichotomy and um, it's interesting that you have become the greatest but simultaneously you're still like yeah i'm okay yeah um i think it, it it requires a balance because you have to be hungry for it right you have to um have like this this strong driving force that motivates you um and in my case, that's pushing me into uh, through this training, which isn't always pleasant. Uh, but at the same time, you have to kind of be aware of the fact that yeah, it's it's not about the the end result, like the achievement itself. It's about that that process. So if I've been successful, I guess it's because I've been able to. Um, just focus on the moment and on like training as, as hard as I can today mm -hmm. um, and knowing that that's going to give my body the stimulus to make the changes that it needs to go deeper tomorrow. Right. Uh, and not thinking about, okay, in six months time, I want to be hitting this depth or attempting this record, just like doing the best that I can in this moment. Have you ever panicked while you're doing a dive and what is the most sort of traumatic and, and devastating experience you've had while diving? So have I ever panicked? I don't think so. Um, trying to scan my <laughs> memory. No, I don't. no, not really. Um, there's been moments when I've felt fear underwater um, during a deep dive, but because we've kind of programmed our subconscious so much, um, you still don't change physically what I'm doing. The way that I'm swimming, the way that I'm moving doesn't change. So I wouldn't classify that as a panic because I'm still physically completely calm mm -hmm. have i gotten into situations what was the second part were that a, like dangerous or, or yeah like what is the the story of the most you know traumatic or traumatic, devastating right. dive 
so this happened fairly recently during COVID times um, in 2020. And I talked at the start about how a blackout isn't dangerous if it happens close to the surface because your safety diver gets you. But it is dangerous if it happens at depth. And on this occasion, I had um, one safety diver. And for a reason that we're still not clear, but it could not have been due to a lack of oxygen, um, I blacked out at 42 meters, about 140 feet on the way up, out of reach of the safety diver. He didn't even see me. He came down to 30 meters, 100 feet on his dive. Couldn't see me. I already started to like fall back down. And so he went back up to the surface. And once he got to the surface, then he activates the counterballast. But it takes a while. The plate on this dive was, I was going for a very deep free immersion dive, pulling on the rope, and it was 127 meters, so over 400 feet, like 420 or so. And it takes a long time for the plate to come back up to the depth where I'm falling to, and then it catches me and, and brings me to the surface. So I fell from 130 down to about 250 feet. Um, obviously, my eardrums were both blown out, um, and I'm unconscious for this whole time. The plate catches me, and then they it brings me to the surface. But at that point, I'd been under the water for about six, almost seven minutes. And a typical dive to this depth shouldn't take more than about four and a half minutes. So it took a while for them. Actually, it didn't take that long for them to resuscitate me, considering what I'd been through. I think it was about a minute before I started breathing again by myself. But it took me a while before I became kind of conscious enough to start having thoughts and memories. And at that point, I realized um, because I'd been under for so long, I was experiencing DCS, which is where the, the nitrogen that's dissolved um, forms bubbles and becomes a problem. So I had to get back down and do um, decompression uh, prevention, basically. So breathing oxygen, pure oxygen at depth. And I couldn't couldn't feel my leg, couldn't use my legs, couldn't really use my arms properly. Couldn't see properly. I could hear very well and I could think clearly, which is what saved me um, because it allowed me to get back under the water, breathing oxygen. Uh, and then everything started to clear up after that. But yeah, I don't have memories of that dive after the turn. So I don't know what happened to make me black out at that depth. Um, and I tried to, I, I used hypnosis even, got hypnotized um, by someone to try and remember those thoughts that are lost, but um, couldn't get there. So that was definitely traumatic because it shook my whole foundation of, of what I thought was safe diving and forced me to kind of completely question what I was doing and then um, how I was doing it as well. So that's definitely the most traumatic event in my career. I mean, that's crazy. And when you dove again the next time after that, those thoughts, I'm sure, are ruminating again in your head. Mm. What is the mental battle like to mitigate that? Yeah, the that negative thought voice obviously has more ammo at that point, right? Uh, so it's a process, again, of just building up slowly, um, mm. taking it easily at first, doing dives that are shallow, um, just to feel the sensations again, to build your confidence back up. And then gradually increasing those depths back up to where I was before. Wow. Uh, but it took me a month to recover and to kind of process it and to ask myself and my family the question, like, should I be doing this? Should I be continuing? 
And uh, then ultimately when the answer was yes, then I just gradually worked back into it. And they were supportive even after that experience. And and I I know your wife dives as well now, Mm. right? And so I guess she has a little bit of an understanding where she gets it, right? Yeah, so she's a free diver um, and she, I think, uh, understands kind of the the reason why I I am doing what I'm doing and, and supports it. Um, but I'm sure it is um, stressful or, or worrying for her as well. So uh, like I'm grateful for her support and her kind of patience through that. But yeah. um, obviously we had to like change the way that I was training and diving in order to better accommodate for this kind of a um, potential. Yeah, of course. Incident. I mean, it is interesting that all that mental training that you did before is ultimately what saved you, that you're still able to be sharp the second, you know, you came to and kind of regained consciousness, mm. that you're able to just be like, hey, I'm back on. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's like a natural thing. I think that's probably due to all the constant training that you've done to stay sharp. Yeah, maybe. But it was a gradual state. Like it, it was kind of like, everything was coming back online slowly like the the hard drive was slowly being rebooted when i came to um and but yeah the, the first thought, thought in my mind was i've got to get back down there with pure oxygen to get rid of this this nitrogen do you think you'll ever stop diving i'll never stop going in the sea um and free diving mm-hmm. i'll obviously at some point stop trying to break records and trying to compete um when that will be, who knows? Um, so it's a sport where we definitely peak later in our lives and our careers oh, because really? it benefits from a slowing down of the metabolism and also from just, a, I guess, like a, a development of calmness, which seems to happen more later in your life, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's been athletes like the woman who was dominating the sport 10 years ago, Natalia Morchanova, a Russian lady. She was in her 50s and still smashing mm-hmm. world records. So um, there's, there's a long life in this career. I'm sure the community is probably pretty small as well. So if something happens, you know, some type of tragedy to any of the other divers, does that affect the community? Do you find that people retire after... You know, they see someone close to them pass away or become injured or things like that? It could do, but I haven't seen that as much. We've had a few fatalities, um, most of them people who are, who are close to me. Uh, but um, I don't see it having an effect of discouragement on the community. Uh, if anything, the, the sport is growing really quickly right now, mm-hmm. um, especially in America also, but especially in, in Asia and in countries like Taiwan and South Korea and China. Um, it's going crazy. So we're seeing a lot more people coming into the sport. Um, and obviously there's people who are retiring, who are dropping out, but on the whole, it's it's booming. And you would encourage your kids to, to try it, right? Definitely to try it. I encourage them to try anything that's not, um, that's not stupid or right. unhealthy. But you don't see it as so overly dangerous that someone can, you know, practice at, you know, intermediate depths and not mm. expose themselves, but still be able to benefit some of the the mental and, and physical benefits you've you've reaped. Absolutely, yeah. And that's where it's most rewarding is just, it's not trying to break a record, but just going to easy depths and feeling like you are integrated into that aquatic world, like you are an aquatic creature yourself. Um, 
not just there as a as a tourist like you are with a scuba tank but as an actual denizen of that underwater realm and that's the most beautiful sensation yeah this is kind of blowing my mind i feel like i need to to free dive immediately <laughs> you should definitely try it. I, I encourage everyone to try it at least once what is, what is the process like to start like obviously you should never dive alone never dive alone and never even hold your breath in the water alone that's important too because you might think okay i've got a pool i can just like jump in and try and hold my breath for a minute or two especially if you're hyperventilating if you're doing that technique from before yeah and you do that in a pool then you are at great risk um, so always with someone else who's trained in the freediving techniques um how do you find someone like i'm in new york city i just google so there's there's clubs but the best thing would be to um to have someone else who wants to try it as well and you could go somewhere come to the bahamas and, and try it at dean's blue hole or anywhere else with that good for free diving and once you have those techniques then you can you can keep on training in the pool uh doing it the static or the dynamic apnea mm -hmm. or you can do it whenever you go to a holiday destination that's got warm water and it's deep is there a specific technique or style that someone should do if they're just starting like fins no fins is it just personal preference i it's probably better to start with fins mm -hmm. and the reason is that the technique is more basic it's, it's easier especially when you're trying to equalize at the same time so as we go down typically we have to pinch our nose and blow to equalize and if you're using your hands and feet um, in a complicated way it becomes more more difficult mm. once you've got that down then you can progress to diving with um, just goggles and a nose clip or without anything on your eyes at all in which case you can use your hands and feet you can develop the no fin style yeah um, but definitely to begin with mask snorkel fins wetsuit if you're if it's cold water that's all you need have you explored other types of like uh aquatic adventure like caving um i know obviously you did this uh this what do they call it? like a channel swim where it was a bunch of individualized mm. breaths uh, but have you experienced where that you know like you go into a cave or, or like uh, going to like really tight spaces specifically to try to go through I've, I've seen videos of people that will like you try to shimmy through rocks like underwater right. kind of thing do you try that have you, you yeah that would that? be not tight spaces yeah. um, that wouldn't be my thing and that would be extremely dangerous on a on freediving because if you get stuck then that's you're, it. you're screwed yeah so i have done swimming into caves right. um and through there's a famous one in egypt um there's a blue hole and it's got a connection between the blue hole and the ocean that's called the arch and i was the first person to swim through that without fins or wetsuit or anything oh really it's um it's at a depth of 55 meters 170 feet and it's about 100 feet or more through the arch so you just go kind of go down across and up and how long is that whole the, descent um the whole dive takes uh, i think it took me about three minutes which isn't too light. like it wouldn't be anywhere near as difficult as the the record attempts that i've done what could um, you hold your breath for like just on like an average training day if you were to jump in the water the longest i've held my breath without moving static apnea is eight minutes eight uh, minutes but that's not so long on the scale of things there's people who hold their breath 10 even more minutes Wow. Um, those are the specialists with big lung volumes and small body mass. Um, so, so yeah, there's there's a lot of cave diving um, that's incredible, like in, in the cenotes in in Mexico, um, in the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, those are incredible places to dive in caves. 
and it's beautiful, but we can't go very deep into the caves, obviously, um, like a cave diver would. Right. And can most people expand their lung capacity? Like you getting to eight minutes is like, yeah, of course, you're one of the greatest ever. Am I able to get to like four or five minutes with, you know, like mm -hmm. a, let's say six months of training or a year of training? Yeah. Yeah. I would get definitely get you to four or five minutes in really? six months. Yeah, for sure. Um, probably more. So as long as you are um, not a couch potato, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't have like a heart condition, then you definitely three, four minutes um, is reachable. And you might even get there on your first day of training. Can I, can I try one minute of breath hold? Sure. Okay. Will you okay. do it with him? <laughs> uh, I can, yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you try it with the Wim Hof method, with the hyperventilation, it'll mm -hmm. be easy. If you try it uh, with my method, it'll be hard. But in the long run, my method will get you a longer breath hold and a safer one as well. Okay. Um, can we try it? And, and just when you start to experience that urge to breathe, uh, the suffocating feeling, tell yourself it's just information it's just information about a gas in my body that's building up that's mm -hmm. not harmful for me or, or dangerous um and try and treat it as such okay can, can we can we try it yeah okay cool are we going for a minute or do you just want to do as long as you can i'll probably only be able to do a minute but maybe yeah okay. if i can go long i mean i won't go more than two or three minutes do you want me to do it with you or talk you through it <sighs> maybe you talk me through it what, okay yeah yeah talk me through it okay okay so this is going to be just a pure straight breath hold with no preparation. I mean, obviously, you, hopefully you're a little relaxed now. And in fact, you can kind of make yourself comfortable. Yeah. Um, and the important thing is that you haven't hyperventilated. Right. So you haven't prepared yourself by lowering the carbon dioxide, which means that you'll start to feel that urge to breathe very quickly. Um, and in fact, if we did a few of these on the second, third, fourth ones, that urge to breathe would be dampened. So you'd be able to go a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And I told you before that I could get you to hold your breath for probably three or four minutes in a day, um, but it's not gonna be on the first breath hold, especially like sitting here like this. Of course. So this is just for you to experience that sensation of the urge to breathe and try and detach from it, try and be on the other side of that, that soundproof glass, observe it as information that's coming to your awareness. Great. So for now, um, yeah, just relax. And then I'll give you a countdown of 10 seconds. And on uh, after 10 seconds, take one full breath, breathe into your belly first. Um, it can be through your nose, but at the end, breathe through your mouth. Uh, so start with your nose and then at the end, try and maximize your, your breath, breathe in through the mouth. So no preparation, no breathe up. And 10 seconds from now, Five, four, three, two, one. Inhale deep, all the way into your belly, into your lungs. Can you holding that? Good. So now just relax everything. Relax your arms. Relax your shoulders. Your head can fall forwards if you want it to. And I want you just to kind of move through your body from your toes up, just making sure that everything is as relaxed as possible. You can kind of wiggle your your toes if you need to, or move your legs. Um, make sure your legs are completely relaxed. Your hands, your arms, your shoulders especially, your chest, your neck, your head, and then all the muscles of your face, your lips, your jaw, 
your eyes, relax them completely. Even your tongue inside your mouth, just let that completely relax. And probably you're starting to feel, just raise one finger if you're feeling an urge to breathe already. You are, okay. Remember that's just information, it's just CO2. Your oxygen levels are still very, very high and you can stay in this place for a lot, lot longer. Uh, this is just information that's coming to your awareness from your bloodstream, from the carbon dioxide in your blood. There's nothing adverse to it. There's no damage or problem. When you feel like you cannot hold your breath any longer, then I want you to slowly count backwards from 10 in your mind. And if you get to zero, then try and count up from zero to 10 at any speed. Just as slow as possible down from 10. Hold it a little bit longer. You're doing really well. Uh, you're already at coming up to 150, so I'm sure you'll be able to make it to past two minutes. That's 155 now. Time passes a lot slower towards the end, uh, a lot quicker towards the end, sorry. So that's two minutes already. You're doing really good. Challenge yourself to hold it a little bit longer, a little bit longer. Count backwards from five slowly if you can, a little bit longer. That's good. Really good. Doing really good. Two minutes, 15 there. Hold a little bit more. 10 seconds. You can do this. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. That's two minutes, 30. <laughs> Amazing. Good stuff. That is that is actually really good to to hold two and a half minutes. In, <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot to you because you, you've heard about eight minute breath holds, but um, with never having done it before and doing two and a half minutes with no preparation uh, like that is is good. Like if you were to now relax, lie down. Um, spend three minutes relaxed and then try another one, you'd probably go to 3, 3.30 or something like that. And if you tried another one after that, you might get close to, to four minutes. Wow. Um, How far did I go? 2.30. Oh, wow. That's Two minutes cool. That's really good. Mm. That's, bro. that's really good. That's, that's, a, a, that's a weird feeling, bro. <laughs> what, when, you, when you're getting to that end and you feel your whole body like convulsing, like you could see me convulsing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. What's happening there? You have uh, what are called breathing reflexes, where your body is spontaneously trying to breathe in, but you don't let the air come in. And so it kind of has this effect of convulsing your chest. Um, does that go away once you start training? and Or does it just come up later? It comes later, uh, but it never goes away. I'll have those from, if I do this kind of a breath hold, they'll start at about that time, like 2.30 or 3. Right. And I have them all the way through to eight minutes. Wow. Um, but you've got to try and maintain your relaxation through that that phase as well. Wow. But no, I'm serious. That is actually pretty good um, to, that was cool. to be able to do 2.30 in that kind of circumstances. So you could definitely, that's enough to go 100 feet more. Um, 100 feet? Yeah, free diving. Yeah. <laughs> what? So then it will become, it's, um, in order to get to that 100 feet, you obviously need to learn the techniques of the movement and yeah, of equalization. Course. Expenditure of all my things and yeah. everything like yeah. that. Yeah, so it's not just an instantaneous thing, but um, you definitely have the breath hold in order to fund a dive to 
that depth. And then with training, yeah, most people should be able to get um, past that as well. So eight minutes for me um, is is kind of close to my limit with a lot of training because, as I said, I don't have a huge lung volume. Do you think human beings, I know you mentioned that we might be getting close kind of to the depths that we can go naturally and that we're probably nearing that point. Do you think that there's just a threshold where it's like humans can't go past this? Or do you think we'll continue to find ways to to break it and that generations to come, you know, like with most sports, mm. things will get more competitive. We'll find different advantages and different ways to, uh, to mm. you know, excel. So with the Nofins discipline, uh, there's no equipment. And so there's nothing kind of technical that's going to advance there other than the wetsuit. But mm-hmm. um, I use an Orca wetsuit that's pretty much as good as it's going to get. It's, it's the best suit. Nothing else other than that. So it just all comes down to, to the human body. And will we ever dive to 200 meters Nofins? No. 150? No. Um, 100 and, the record's 102 now. Will we dive to 103? Of course, someone will do it someday. But you don't think 150? Not 150, Because no. when the record was 80 meters, people said we couldn't dive further than that, and then you proved that to be... Yeah, but I always had... So when the record was... When I started, the record was 60, and I had a dream to dive to 76 meters, 250 feet on my 25th birthday. Um and by the time I turned 25, the record was then at um, 80 meters. So I said, okay, I'm going to try and get to 300 feet. 300 feet, two bare feet, one breath of air, which was 92 meters, so a lot more. Um, and then when I got to that, I was like, okay, I can get to 100 meters. It's only another eight meters. But this whole process is kind of like a, it's a plateauing effect. So to get to 100 meters took me um, about the same time as it did to get from 100 to just 102. Uh, like that extra yeah. meter. Those um, little efficiency gains. Yeah. And I, I, I have, I mean, I'm sure I can go deeper than that with a bunch of, like if I spent the next two years only training and only focusing on that discipline, maybe I can add on another meter. So we can go deeper, but it's just into this gray area of decreasing probability and you Uh, really feel that extra meter like as you're swimming down mm -hmm. in my mind it's like it's one more one more kick that's all or i guess it's two more if you're going one meter but come back up as well yeah exactly but i'm like it's it's so little to add Mm -hmm. but as you're going are you ever like reaching the bottom and you're like that's farther than I've ever gone. Like, are, are you even thinking about that? Are you thinking about... It pops into your head, yeah. But you just, again, you schedule it, delay it, just detach from it. Because mm-hmm. you can't be thinking about even positive things like, um, this is this is great, I'm, I'm at the deepest I've ever been. But you still have to swim back up, right? Yeah, what, so, what, what is that? I'm, I'm really curious. I don't know if I have a solid answer for like what that mental process is as you're approaching that plate and you're about to break a record and you've gone farther than any human has ever gone just with two legs and mm. you know two feet and a breath. It's not positive. It's not like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm the greatest. It's not, oh, I'm, I suck. You better not die. Like what is happening? I'm detaching again. So, yeah. so just um, focusing on what I'm doing in that moment or even just giving my brain something that's just like the most menial, simple task for it to do. So on the way up, counting strokes. I take about from 100 feet to 100 meters, um, 300 feet takes about 30, 33 strokes, um, kicks and arm strokes. And you'll literally just count. You just go one, mm-hmm. two, three, 
And the thing is that your brain is slowed down so much that even just that one process takes up all of its kind of capacity. And often I will lose count um, and I'll be like one, two, two, yeah. three, like, did I just say three? Okay, two again. And, and I end up getting to the surface having counted 12 strokes when I've actually done, because I can check on my, my depth gauge, I've done 33. Um, so, but just the, the fact that you're kind of giving it this task, this mm. super easy task, or it could be just like humming the most basic tune um, melody in your head, that is enough to keep it occupied and not get sucked into all this other thinking. It's what? kind of like giving a pacifier to a kid. Hilarious. You're like, yeah, just play with this. It's like a fidget spinner <laughs> for your brain. Just fidget exactly. with something. Do something yeah. while I'm focused on breaking a record. Yeah. Oh, that's so crazy. What what song do you hum? Do you have a specific one in mind? Um, well, there's these church bells in the, or the, the town bells in the town where I used to live in Italy when I was training there. Um, just the most simple, like I think it's three notes. Um, and so I just kind of hum that in my head. Oh, that's so wild. Yeah. I mean, this is this has been so fun. I really appreciate you coming out and, and chatting with me. Genuinely, this mm. has been really, really exciting. I'm going to think a lot about uh, that stomach breathing and like focusing on channeling anxiety, detaching from the thoughts entering my head mm -hmm. and really trying to just observe them and, and, and schedule them for later. Yeah. And think oh, about I, it, but also try and um, again, make it an immune system. Right. Uh, so program it into your subconscious yeah that's the game changer that will make it a permanent thing rather than just like something that you have to remember to do yeah now you have uh the documentary out that's uh it's awesome breathe right that's an old one now um there's some new ones coming out this year and actually i just did one where i was teaching orlando bloom how to freedive oh really that should be really fun you know, how he was had, he he was pretty good he's a um He's a uh, driven, but stuff like what's the <laughs> like obsessively kind of overachieving um, guy. So it was a good experience for him, I think, because he had to tame that side of him that was kind of trying to to go further, go deeper. Oh, interesting. Um, How deep did he end up going? He know? went deep. Um, went to forty-two meters. Oh wow! Uh, or 40, 40 meters, I think. Uh, pulling on the rope and he reached um, out to you and was like hey i would love to do this mm, and came to to the bahamas last year just after vertical blue hour event and we only had like two or three days and we had a film crew who were breaking our balls the whole time as well so i think that he like if he had a solid week without the crew following him he would go deeper and, and do better which shows that like someone who's yeah, in good shape and, and healthy um driven yeah i mean maybe he has some natural ability as well um but i feel like it's within the reach of everyone like anyone can start the sport and draw from it the same sensations that i do when i'm going to these depths yeah and that's an important note i don't need to be the best i don't need to break some record mm -hmm. i can just do a very average regular amount and still reap some of the benefits of, of mindfulness 100 percent. yeah yeah um and then you also have a memoir that's out oxygen yeah yeah i think it's um sold out in print but it's available on amazon and in, in digital format and i need to but everyone's been telling me i have to record it on audible because it's the yeah. it's a new thing so maybe 
I'll see if I can. Let do me that record some. it. Let me record yeah? it for you. Do you yeah. want to read it? Thank you. you. Know, I'm going to do it in my accent. You know, I'm, I think I'm going to nail it. <laughs> Just not the Aussie accent. <laughs> Fine. I'll figure out how to do a Kiwi one. I'll do a little okay. better with that. Yeah. But thank you again. I really appreciate this. No, thank, thank you so you much. much. And it's been uh, great. yeah, I'll let you head over to the airport so you can get back to the Bahamas. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers.